You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. School and State Alliance, held November 10, 11, and 12, 1995 in Arlington, Virginia. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation Alliance, and permission is hereby granted if you would like to make gift copies for friends. One of the most difficult questions that were asked, there are the three tough questions or the frequent questions that we are asked when we propose the separation of school and state, usually is phrased, what about irresponsible parents? And what about parents who aren't as good as my spouse and me? these irresponsible parents. And I am uh, greatly impressed with the work of Alan Carlson from the Rockford Institute and have asked him to address this issue. And we've chosen the title for the presentation, Why Separation Will Lead to Improved Parenting in Struggling Families. Uh, that may include more than just the, quote, irresponsible, unlike all of us in this room. So uh, to introduce uh, Mr. Carlson, I call upon my friend and uh, postmaster extraordinaire, uh, Paul Schmidt from Johnson City, Tennessee. Paul. <laughs> Thank you, Marshall. Here to introduce Alan Carson. As Marshall said, he is president of the Rockford Institute and publisher of Chronicles, The Family in America, and the Religion and Society Report. He was appointed by Ronald Reagan and served from 1988 to 1991 on the National Commission of Children. He also served on the Council on Families in America and as a consultant to the Research Institute for the Family. Carlson has written extensively on family policy. His book, Family Questions, Reflections on the American Social Crisis, was published in 1988 and most recently from Cottage Workstation, The Family's Search for Social Harmony in the Industrial Age appeared in 1993. Carlson also writes on modern social history, economics and culture, and modern religion. His longer essays have appeared in several anthologies and in numerous publications, including The Public Interest, The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, San Francisco Chronicle, and the Chicago Tribune. He has been interviewed for the McNeil Air News Hour, NPR, ABC, CBS, CBN, CNN, C-SPAN, and four special PBS productions on family and children and children's issues. Please help me welcome Alan Carlson. My introducer just indicated I've been asked to address the contention that a separation of school and state will result in the strengthening of families and the improvement of parenting. Now, my training as a historian leads me to open with an investigation of the historic tie between public schooling and the family. But first, and unfortunately, I need note that the word family has been badly abused in recent decades, twisted to justify all kinds of mischief. So in deference to the grammarians and others, it is important for me to start by giving a clear statement of what I mean by the word. I firmly reject at the outset the standard contemporary view 
found in most sociology departments today, that the family is changing or evolving into new forms better suited to modern living. Rather, I hold that family structure of a certain kind is rooted in human nature, in our genetic inheritance, in our instincts, in our hormones. The human family is no more subject to rapid change than is the instinctual blink of the eye or the shiver down the spine. The so-called changes that we observe in family living are either deterioration from a natural order or restoration toward that order. So in all corners of the globe and in every historic age, the human family can be defined as a man and a woman in a socially approved covenant called marriage. For the purposes of mutual care and protection, sexual intimacy, the begetting and bearing of children, the construction of a small home economy, and the continuity of the generation. Over the last 150 years, it is indeed true that the human family system has faced extraordinary pressures from two sources. First, from the so-called permanent revolution of modern industrial capitalism, and second, from the exponential growth of the modern state, particularly in the realm of education. From the very beginning, public school advocates aimed, as they had to, at undermining and displacing the family as the center of children's lives. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a philosophical zealot and dreamer, adopted this politically charged vision of learning and began by demoting the family. As he wrote, our country includes family, friends, and property, and the state should be preferred to them all. Let our pupil be taught to love his family, but let him be taught at the same time that he must forsake and even forget them when the welfare of his country requires it. Our old friend Horace Mann of Massachusetts held similar attitudes toward the family, citing the neglect ignorance and inefficiencies of families in his state, he emphasized the brutality of what he labeled monster families, deemed totally unworthy of their children. Indeed, man linked the common school system to a vision of the total welfare state, where government simply assumed the role of parents. As he wrote in his school report for 1846, Massachusetts is parental in her government. More and more, as year after year rolls by, she seeks to substitute prevention for remedy and rewards for penalties. The Common School Journal, founded by Mann and his colleagues in 1838, featured the denigration of family life as one of its regular themes. Here are some passages chosen from the Common School Journal, somewhat at random. The little interests or conveniences of the family must be subordinate to the paramount subject of the school. The public schools succeed because parents, although the most sunken in depravity themselves, welcome the proposals and receive with gratitude the services of moral philanthropy in behalf of their families. There are many worthless parents. These are illustrations of the folly of a parent who interferes with and perplexes a teacher while instructing or training his child. And finally, parents must cease to regard wealth as the best inheritance they can leave to their children. 
better that this family wealth be used to expand the common schools. These sentiments spread with public education across the land. Over the middle decades of the 19th century, John Sweat, superintendent of the California state system from 1863 to 1869, was blunt in his opinion that the state must replace the family. As he wrote, children arrived at the age of maturity belong not to the parents, but to the state, to society, to the country. And Sweat maintained that this gave the state the right to reach back into the children's early years as well. In his 1864 report to the California legislature, Sweat explained that the child should be taught to consider his instructor superior to the parent in point of authority. The vulgar impression that parents have a legal right to dictate to teachers is entirely erroneous. Parents have no remedy as against the teacher. F.W. Parker, another father of modern education, an inspiration for John Dewey, told the 1895 convention of the NEA that, quote, the child is not in school for knowledge, he is there to live, and put his life nurtured in the school into the community. As Parker concluded, every school in the land should be a home and heaven for children. Now it is tempting to simply dismiss such conclusions and words as the overblown rhetoric of bureaucrats and education professors. But there is direct evidence of a strong linkage between the spread of mass state education and the weakening and decline of the family. This evidence derives from the, from the field of demography, that is, from population studies. It focuses on changes in fertility. So the readiness of married couples to bring children into the world is perhaps the most sensitive numerical measure that we have of family integrity. Humans have always known and practiced ways of regulating their fertility. And the effects of economic, political, or cultural shifts on the family can be measured by trends in birth rates and by average completed family size. Higher fertility, of course, does not automatically mean better parenting, but it does mean a deepened commitment to children and to the home relative to other potential claims on the time of adults. In terms of state education and fertility, the critical work comes from demographers John Caldwell and Norman Ryder. Caldwell's theory of fertility decline appeared in 1982 and represents a provocative attempt to apply anthropological research, primarily from Africa and Australia, across the board. Caldwell notes, as others have before, that fertility declines only when there is a change in the economic relations within the family. In traditional societies, the flow of wealth is from children to parents. Children are thus perceived as economic assets, and fertility is high. However, as the modern labor market mode of production breaks through in a society, the flow of wealth reverses, now going from parents to children. Educated children, Caldwell explains, expect to be given more and to be demanded of less by their parents and their economic importance for parents evaporates. But in an important turn of his argument, Caldwell emphasizes that it is not urbanization nor the rise of industry, per se, that causes this shift in family relations. Rather, he shows very carefully that it is the prior importation 
or promulgation of new ideas through mass education that causes the critical shift in the parent-child relation. State-mandated education, he shows, serves as the driving force behind the shift in preference from a large to a small family. And the construction of the modern family, as we call it, is limited in its claim. Evidence from the United States gives strong support to Caldwell's emphasis on public schooling as the primary explanation of family deterioration. The steady fall in American fertility between 1850 and 1900 had long puzzled demographers. For throughout this period, the United States remained predominantly rural and absorbed masses of young immigrants with the situations normally associated with many babies. Carl Rove and Turtler interpreters speculated, though, that the leadership role of the United States in introducing a mass state education system might explain this anomaly. And indeed, U.S. data from 1871 to 1900 show a remarkably strong negative relationship, with all other things held equal, a strong negative relationship between the fertility of women and an index of public school growth developed by LPIers in 1920. Fertility decline was particularly related to the average number of days that children in a district attended school over a given year. Even among rural farming families where children still held economic value, the negative influence of public schooling on fertility was amazingly strong. Each additional month that children spent in school decreased family size in that district by 0.25 children. Indeed, we can see here very graphically how state education quite literally, quite literally, had consumed children and had weakened families. With his usual bluntness, Norman Ryder, professor of sociology at Princeton University, has offered a variation of the Caldwell theory, one giving greater emphasis to mortality decline, yet one which continues to stress the role of state education as the disruptor of family integrity. The state school, writer states, serves as modern society's agent in the release of the individual from obligations to kin. Quote, education of the junior generation is a subversive influence. Boys who go to school distinguish between what they can learn there and what their father can teach them. The reinforcement of the family control structure is undermined when the young are trained outside the family for specialized roles in which the father has no confidence. A related struggle goes on between the family and the state for the allegiance of the child. As Ryder puts it, political organizations, like economic organizations, demand loyalty and attempt to neutralize family particularism. There is a struggle between the family and the state for the minds of the young, in this struggle, the state school serves as the chief instrument for teaching citizenship in a direct appeal to the children over the heads of their parents. The school also serves as the medium for communicating state morality and a state mythology designed to displace those of families. So we can indict, with justice, state education as a direct cause of family decline. The critical question becomes, if we reverse the process and disestablish state education, would families currently in trouble, and I think that most families, or the majority of families now, 
Would families currently in trouble grow stronger? The evidence here is less clear, but the project itself is in its infancy, and educational researchers, for obvious reasons, have given the matter scant attention. Yet there are laboratory experiments of quasi-separation, which offer tantalizing hints regarding effects on the family, and I want to mention at least three here. First, among the Roman Catholics. Of all American religious groups, Roman Catholics have maintained most vigorously an educational system separate from the public schools. The Catholic parochial system showed particular strength in the middle decades of the 20th century. Not coincidentally, it turns out that the 1940 to 1967 era produced an extraordinary increase in Catholic marital fertility. Again, what has proven to be a sign of family renewal. While births rose for all American religious groups in this period, the era known as the baby boom, it rose far more rapidly and continued longer among Catholics. Indeed, the turn to larger completed families was found almost exclusively among Roman Catholics. Moreover, we are able to show that women's attendance at Catholic schools, elementary, secondary, and college levels, was positively associated with this higher fertility. And while the Catholic birth rate has generally fallen back towards national norms by the 1980s, researchers could still show, even at that time, a significant positive tie between the number of births in a family and a woman's prior attendance at Catholic schools. The second laboratory experiment is the Old Order Amish, mentioned last night. Now, the Amish people violate every modern rule. Relative to the state, the Amish are, at their request, exempt from Social Security and Medicare. They refuse welfare. They exploit child labor from age three on. And, most important for our purposes, they keep their children out of state schools, operating their own schools through the eighth grade. Now, these schools are closely tied to family living. As Donald Craybill, who's examined the uh, Amish at length, explained, continuity reigns supreme. In some instances, all the children in a family have the same teacher for all eighth grades. Parents relate to one teacher, who over the years developed a keen understanding of the family. A teacher may relate to as few as ten families in a school year, for there are four or five children from some households. Upon completion of the eighth grade, Amish children leave the classroom for practical apprenticeships in farming, gardening, crafts, shop work, and manual trades, all integrated into traditional family living. Here again, we can link non-state education to high fertility, the mark of successful familism. By age 45, the typical contemporary Amish woman has given birth to 7.1 children exactly the figure found among all Americans before the advent of public education in 1830. Exactly the same figure. Now, it may seem overly simplistic to attribute these Amish family characteristics to non-state education, but one should recall the work of Caldwell and Ryder, the two leading demographic investigators on this question. They agree that traditionalist or peasant societies with strong families are most vulnerable to subversion to state education. During the various Amish school wars of the 1960s and early 70s, Amish elders were altogether correct 
in their defiance of the authorities. State schooling would have destroyed their family system and their community. In the freedom they won from state educational coercion, they have shown how a peasant people, a primitive people, might survive and indeed even thrive in the modern competitive world if they can only avoid state schools. The third laboratory experiment here is the contemporary homeschooling movement. From Charlotte Perkins, Perkins Gilman in the 1890s to Talcott Parsons in the 1950s to Alvin Toffler in the 1980s, analysts of the family in America have emphasized the family's loss of function. That is, they have shown how the home production of goods has passed to industry, while the educational, protective, and welfare functions of the family have passed to the state. Changes that left the family deinstitutionalized and weak. As the perceptive American writer Wendell Berry has explained, the old centers of home and community were made vulnerable to this invasion by corporation and state through their failure as economies. If there is no household or community economy, then family members and neighbors are no longer useful to one another. The local schools no longer serve families or the local communities. They serve the government's economy and the economy's government. Home education, viewed in this context, represents the return of a central function to the family. And as any home educator can testify, it also forces a fundamental reorganization of the family in terms of its behavior, the behavior of all of its members, in terms of its relationship to the outside world, and in its internal psychology. In short, the family becomes re-institutionalized. I also suspect, but cannot yet prove, that the act or intent of homeschooling stimulates marital fertility, the standard measure that I've used today of family renewal. Certainly, homeschooled families are, on average, larger than families placing children in public schools. Moreover, I suspect that the economic logic of home education, in a Gary Becker's sense, also encourages still more births. For in some respects, the economic gain to the family of maintaining one parent as a teacher in the home increases with each additional child. Are homeschooling parents better? In measurable terms of child well-being, certainly yes. Homeschooled children perform significantly higher on standardized tests than their public school peers. Children at home are less likely to engage in high-risk behaviors, such as the use of mind-altering drugs or promiscuous non-marital sex, and they are healthier as well. Now, homeschooling may be logical, but it is not easy, for it demands a stance to force the pressures of the modern state and the modern society and the modern economy not dissimilar to that of the Amish. Not every family who begins the process succeeds, but those who do persevere will contain, I believe, both better parents and better children in the end. And with that, I'd better stop. Thank you. Before I introduce our first panelist, Lon Woodbury, I would like to uh, explain that uh, Michael Schwartz has not undergone a, a gender transformation. But uh, 
Uh, his uh, former colleague, Sister Renee Oliver, has been uh, pressed into uh, serving uh, to replace him. And uh, the uh, other uh, uh, responder, our stealth responder, uh, David Wagner, preferred to listen from the back of the room, but now will come forward <laughs> ever so uh, well. Thank you. Find a chair. Alphabetical order, please. But our first responder is a man that uh, first came to my acquaintance via a um, client of his who uh, uh, called our office and told us that there's a man in Bonners Ferry, Idaho, that uh, we should know. And uh, he was quite surprised I'd heard of Bonners Ferry. But uh, we, I called him and we had a great chat and then we be began an email um, relationship. I've gotten his newsletter and been impressed with it. His name is Lon Woodbury. He's an educational consultant who has worked with, who works with emotional growth schools and programs um, for about 10 years. Now, prior to that, he taught in the public schools and was involved in public policy, working with the U.S. Senate and for the Executive Office of the President. He offers a nationwide referral service for parents of adolescents with behavioral and emotional problems. He writes an education newsletter, Woodbury Reports, and publishes a directory, Places for Struggling Teens. So he is uniquely qualified to be responded to Ms. Carlton. So would you please come forward, Lon Woodbury. Well, good morning. I'm glad uh, you allowed me to stand up here and sit at the talking night. You see a school teacher from the classroom. And of the habit, sitting up, I'm standing in front of the classroom, and I like to move around and, uh, and uh, not sit and be rather passive. So I start waving my arms to uh, just sort of ignore that and don't let it distract you. As, uh, as Marshall explained, uh, my service, I work with, to a large extent, with dysfunctional families. I get about a thousand calls a year, I figured, of parents that I talk to or work with. And basically the scenario is Johnny's bouncing off the wall and nothing works. The school district won't help us or can't. The mental health can't. We placed him in a hospital that made it worse. We tried homeschooling and he blew that off and uh, I'm using both uh, boys and girls with a uh, similar pattern. I've talked to about a thousand parents and in depth and helped some of them find some places. Basically what I do is there's some um, places, schools and programs, wilderness programs, various types of programs that are developed for kids that are out of control. And so the parents can enroll the kids there. They're highly structured so the kids can learn the basics. Most of the kids' problem is they miss the basics from growing up. For example, cause and effect. The kids didn't uh, learn the relationship. And without that, without a handle on cause and effect, the child's not going to make good decisions. But I, on, in, on what Alan was talking about, and the parents and the families and how the separation would help, I made a couple observations from my experience. It's sort of a report from the field and working with these parents. But the first thing I talked to the parents is they want to talk about how the system let me down. I went to the school and I had a child had ADD or whatever it is, and they wouldn't do anything. Or the child had behavioral problems and learning problems, and they put him or her in a classroom with children that are one step from going to the penitentiary. All kinds of problems. And the first thing I have to do with the parents is say, well, that's what bureaucracies do. And get 
their expectations out of the way. I talk to all kinds of parents that they want to talk to me about how the, the systems let them down. And so I think part of the problem in so far as the families is that people have expectations and the expectations are that the public school is going to work. And then when they're disappointed, they don't know where to turn. They also have limitations. I have a lot of mothers saying, well, I don't know anything. I don't know. I'm not a teacher. And I have to explain to them, probably you're the best authority on your child anybody in the world. Don't ever let a professional, don't let me, don't let a teacher, anybody tell you what's happening with your child. They have knowledge and they can help, but you're the authority on the child. So I think what's happened in the context of this is that the public schools and the public institutions, by the existence of them, have created expectations on the part of the parents. They have, parents have limited themselves because the authorities, the experts, are there to rely upon. And also, part of it in the needy children, the lowered trust of the neighbors. That's been a phenomenon that's been going on through the last of the demonization politics. We don't trust our neighbors, and so we raise the question. The poor people won't do it, the needy people won't do it. The healing that will take place, the very existence of the parents of my clients that call me says they're reaching out, they're capable of reaching out, their families are falling apart, they're dysfunctional, but they cut through that, they find somebody like myself, and they find a resource to help the family pull it together. It's automatically happening. People will create a family if we get out of the way, or if the society and the institution get out of the way. And I'm seeing it happening. And it's happening if our institutions do not destroy it by regulating it out of existence. So automatically, I think on the healing, will it happen? Antidote evidence that I have is it's happening. It's trying to happen all the time. And I hear this from the parents. And uh, I hear from the parents all the time. Thank you. Sister Renee Oliver was, thank you very much, Long. Sister Renee Oliver was first mentioned to me by uh, Joe Nathan uh, in Minnesota, a famous guy uh, in some aspects of the education and reform business. And I eventually tracked her down, and we got to know each other a little bit over the telephone. And a year ago, May, I had the pleasure of, uh, of meeting her. And she has, carries two name badges with her. I'll let her explain that herself. And she is the, uh, the head of an organization. She has worked for years for uh, tax-funded vouchers. She told me the story, the moving story, of a little uh, girl uh, trudging off to school in the uh, uh, snow in her galoshes and all of that for, I don't know, 20 miles, she told me, uh, 30. <laughs> but, uh, however many miles it was that she walked uphill both directions uh, <laughs> in the snow to school, that uh, she saw the public school kids on a nice warm bus uh, probably throwing things at, at each other, but uh, if you thought there's something not right here, that my parents are paying taxes to uh, send those children to school uh, on a bus, and I have to walk. So uh, I have found her to be a, uh, a wonderful friend, a, uh, a superb nemesis, because there is a great chasm between us on the uh, on the tax-funded voucher issue. Uh, but that is not her topic today. Her topic today is to respond to Helen Carlson and to share with her share with us some of her experiences. Uh, as a teacher and as a uh, nun uh, who has, uh, has worked with uh, families in her order. The Ursulines uh, is one of the uh, leading uh, orders of Catholic nuns that has worked in the uh, 
the quote inner city, uh, close quote throughout the country. So uh, please join me in a welcome of uh, my favorite sister, uh, Sister Renee Oliver. Thank you. Um, as he said, I'm not here to talk to you about vouchers, but if the word keeps coming up, don't be too surprised. Um, I think that uh, Mr. Carlson did us a tremendous favor in presenting the historical background of the present educational system, and I think it helps us perhaps to see a lot of things in a much better perspective now that he has explained where a lot of them come from, and I think that it might make uh, our struggle uh, to uh, give the uh, rights uh, of choosing education back to the parents and give the control of the children's education back to the parents from whence it came and, and where it belongs. So I think he's done us a, a marvelous uh, favor in uh, giving us that historical perspective. Uh, I would like to look at this uh, or expand a little bit uh, as a retired teacher uh, on the uh, what good this will do for the family as far as the children are concerned. Unfortunately, I think a lot of the struggles that go on uh, in families are um, originate with the children and their ideas of, of what their education should be. I feel that if the children and the parents work together in choosing a school and in choosing a curriculum and choosing an educational environment that will meet the needs and the talents of the children, that the, uh, the individual child is going to have a different uh, outlook on education. In my experience in the classroom, and unfortunately a lot of that was during the, the terrible 60s and 70s, when the uh, children, many of them, uh, with their marijuana hangovers, are practically uh, defying you to teach them anything. Um, I feel, though, that if those children had more of a say in choosing the school, that they would buy into their own education in a way that they do not do, especially when they are forced into a particular public school because they live in a particular district. But if they um, if they choose a school, they're going to say, say something to themselves like, well, you know, I chose this, I've got to make it work. And I really think that children would bring, bring a different attitude toward their own education. I think that they would be deeply involved in their own education, which is certainly lacking even in the present day. Um, The, uh, I, I certainly cannot fault uh, Mr. Carlson's definition of the family. I, I, that wraps around my heart like velvet after hearing all, all of the other definitions of family that we, we hear today. Um, I certainly was surprised at the, uh, the linkage between, the, uh, between fertility and the rise of the public school movement, but now that I take a look at it, well, maybe there is some relationship there. Um, I certainly think that the effects on families, though, of the... Um, enlarged uh, school system that we have today where the uh, even the sports program is just encroaching tremendously on the time of families that uh, taking uh, children away from their families uh, for hours on end I think that all of that is certainly um, detrimental to the family and again I think that anything that we can do to put the parents in control of choosing the child's education and working with the child to find the best uh, uh, school for the child's needs and talents is, is, you know, 
step in the right direction. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sister Renee. And in fact, her mention of the 7.1, or allusion to the 7.1, uh, makes me think of something that occurred to me while, while Ms. Carlson was speaking. And that is that there's a whole new antagonist, um, an opponent series of a set of opponents to the separation of school and state that uh, I was completely unaware of. But how do you think uh, zero population growth is going to respond to this idea? Now, it's not, uh, there's some Latin expression. Uh, that says just because something happened before something else doesn't mean it caused itself to happen when, before it actually did. So the, uh, who's, who's the Latin person here? <laughs> I told you it was a literate audience, Mildred. <laughs> and I can never remember that one, but luckily there's good audiences that may remember. David Wagner is our next uh, responder. David is currently counsel for the House Subcommittee on International Relations and Human Rights. Before coming to Capitol Hill, he served as director of legal policy for the Family Research Council, helping formulate FRC's positions on parental rights. Prior to his years at FRC, Mr. Wagner was a speechwriter at the Department of Justice and under President Reagan, and an editorial writer at the Washington Times. Will you please welcome David Schwartz. David Wagner. We're ah! <laughs> right. all expecting my good friend Michael Schwartz here. Yeah. Michael Wagner, I'm sorry. No, Michael Wagner is one of my sons. <laughs> Uh, I very much enjoyed hearing what Alan had to say about the uh, uh, Catholic families and education facility. I, I come as to you not today, today not only as uh, uh, counsel to my subcommittee on the Hill and the former leader of FRC, but also as the father of a, uh, a Catholic family with five children, uh, which is those, those of whom are school age are currently either being homeschooled or in the field of attending what I call a, a new wave Catholic school, which means one that is uh, uh, founded by lay people. Uh, and is loyal to the teaching authority of the church, but not under the control of any uh, uh, bureaucracy. Uh, I just want to, I, to uh, supplement um, Alan's extremely uh, uh, perceptive uh, remarks with some things that, um, uh, pointing out that, that this, this anti-parental ideology, which grew up in the uh, mid to late 19th century, was not confined to education. Uh, there was a movement that in the uh, uh, some, several of the eastern seaboard cities in the 1880s whereby uh, upper-class people, especially upper-class women, uh, would, come, would conclude that the children of the poor were in, uh, were in intolerable uh, situations and needed to be saved. What really was going on was that they just did not approve of the, uh, of the type of tight uh, family structure and, and the sort of um, uh, insularity. The fact that these little, these little families were civilizations unto themselves, that just... That just uh, drove the rich ladies of Park Avenue crazy, and so under the leadership of uh, one of the leaders was named Charles Loring Brace, who uh, organized an entire society for the, quote, protection of children, and it was not entirely a private uh, enterprise because uh, these people functioned in close relationship with the family court and with the police, and uh, they had the power to uh, basically stick the, uh, uh, the police on families and remove children. Uh, uh, and of course, this hasn't. This, this, this phenomenon has not gone, gone away with, with us today in another form. I'll get to that in a minute. At the ideological or public philosophy level, this uh, child-saving ideology was pretty decisively turned aside for a while in 1920, when the Supreme Court came down with a series of opinions over about a five-year period. Uh, the so-called parental rights cases, uh, Meyer, Meyer versus Nebraska, Pierce Society, Sisters, and a couple of others. And uh, the uh, court there stated quite clearly that uh, uh, 
the family do, family and principal family autonomy do have some constitutional status. The state is not does not have blanket power to standardize children or to replace the functions of the family. Uh, and this is the origin of what is today called the privacy doctrine. And the, the fact that these cases are still uh, what they call good law, that is, they're still operative, is to be credited for the fact that we still have pub, have uh, non-public schools at all. I mean, this is the fact background of Pierce case was that the state of Oregon had quite simply abolished public private education, mandated universal public education. And that was considered uh, uh, a mainstream uh, course of action in the 1920s until Pierce came along. And thanks to Pierce, uh, that is, for the time being anyway, still unconstitutional. However, the Pierce Doctrine has had a very strange interpretive history. Uh, it, Pierce and the other privacy cases were used in the 1960s and 70s as foundation for the uh, personal autonomy cases, uh, such as Grizzle to Connecticut, Roe v. Wade, and so on. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, there, ha there is beginning in the uh, in legal academia what I suspect will be a systematic attack on the Pierce Doctrine. Uh, there's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania named Barbara Bennett Woodhouse, whom I've talked about in a couple of articles I've written. She must think I have a particular uh, thing in for her, but it's, it's, my whole point is that she's, it's, not, it's not just her, she's just typical of the entire movement. But she had an article a couple of years ago when she argued quite explicitly for a, uh, a view of children as the property of the state, and that we need to, and, and that the Oregon school law that was overturned in Pierce should be looked at as, in her words, a formula for radical change, and, and to those are words of praise uh, coming from her. Um, my time, is, my time is out, but uh, these are, these, we're, we're, we're fighting. You know, this, this, the state of ideology is still very much with us, even though it's being fought vigorously by the homeschool movement. Uh, I hope we'll have more to say at the workshop this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the comment about the uh, lady in Pennsylvania was it? Yes. The University of Pennsylvania reminds me of a believe it's Jack Weston, Professor Jack Weston at. Uh, at the University of uh, Wisconsin in Madison, correct me if I'm wrong on the uh, on the name, who has a new book out on uh, licensing of parents. But we have dogs have licenses, drivers have licenses, and that in his opinion, uh, this, he says this with a straight face. I mean, he's a real professor. Uh, this is a real book. <laughs> David says it's on the remainder tables already. Dollar ninety eight, you can buy this book. That's a, but in any event, uh, I urge you to buy a remainder book and have it there as a treasured piece of, uh, of uh, opponent's paraphernalia. Uh, Ms. Carlson, would you please uh, get a 10 minute of response? You know, actually, though, just so that, that, that reference to Jack Westman's book on licensing parents actually brings up an important point. Um, I support the licensing of parents, licensing of parents, and I do that. Uh, when we recall, that's what a marriage license used to be. Um, that was your ticket to reproduction. Um, and that the problem is uh, the problem is that that's no longer seen as a ticket to reproduction. It uh, doesn't have much meaning at all. Um, just a few comments. Actually, my commentators were far too kind and let uh, me off real easy here. I wanted to uh, pick up first of all on this comment of. of regarding dysfunctional families in the sense that the system had let me down. Back in the early 80s, I was um, sent as uh, basically kind of a quasi-observer for the early Reagan um, uh, Department of Health and Human Services at a conference which had been funded and created by the Carter administration, but held during the Reagan period. And it was, it was a conference of families and caregivers or I should say families and professional social workers for 
people caring for severely handicapped, severely handicapped children or adults in, in, in their homes. Uh, this is the end of side one. Please fast forward to queue up side two. Thank you. extremely low metal ages, the kind of care that's almost a 24-hour day continuous type care. And it was the most, one of the most depressing events I've ever been at because the, the many people were there who were caring for family members in, in this way. They'd gotten, you know, gotten, gotten away for a while to come to the conference. And the, um, the relationship between these people who were caring for the, uh, the, the severely disabled and the, the professional social workers was extraordinary. It, uh, it was a deep insight into the paternalism of the state. Quite frankly, what these people wanted, they said over and again, they want to continue caring for their family members. They're not looking for big government grants. They're not looking for extensive programs. All they wanted was once in a while to have a little time to themselves, just to get away, to refresh and re-energize, re maybe one day a week, something like that. That seemed to be their basic request. On the other hand, that was not seen as extremely important by the social workers. Um, they had a whole series of other ideas. And the whole conference was, had this subterranean conflict going on uh, between the, the professionals who, quote unquote, knew better, and the people who were trying to do what families have done since uh, the beginning of time, take care of, of their own. Uh, it was a, uh, um, let's say, a, a deep introduction for me into the uh, just to the, to the failure of a state system to, to deal with any level of, uh, of problem, even, even one where, it would, where, where, where the need seems to cry out for help. Uh, the commentator mentioned that people will create a family if the state gets out of the way. And that sometimes is seen as sort of a, a romantic, kind of a Rousseauian notion. And maybe it is. But uh, maybe Rousseau had a point here and there. Mostly he was a, not a good person, but uh, he had his moment. And um, relative to education, in an meal, he uh, at one point uh, makes those comments uh, very clearly that uh, obviously, or quite how it goes, the paraphrase would be, he says it's very clear and obvious that the best system of education is for the, is for the father to teach his own children. Uh, and he talks about why that is obvious and clear. And um, it's actually a point which Rousseau shares with uh, Adam Smith, who in Theory of Moral Sentiments says exactly the same thing. He says, uh, education in the home is natural. Uh, education by the state is artificial. It, it hardly needs debate or clarification as to which would be the better system. A second point. I just want to drive home this linkage between fertility decline and state schooling. It's not an accident, uh, I don't think. Again, the work by Caldwell and Ryder, which is the most systematic on this, are controlling for all other factors. And they eventually dismiss all other factors as the key triggering factors except state education. It's, um, I think the evidence is quite compelling. It's not a coincidence. It's, in fact, state the introduction of state education is the key triggering mechanism in what might be called the deinstitutionalization of the family. It's not the rise of industry. 
And in fact, it's not the, the modern competitive economy. Again, the Amish are a wonderful example because not only have they managed to survive uh, in our age, but they have in fact thrived by any, I say, would say, scientific measurement. There were 5,000 Amish people in 1900, and there are close to 150,000 today. Now, we moderns, the only thing we accept anymore are numbers. Well, there's some numbers. Who succeeded and who failed? Because when they were growing at that rate, I mean, that's a fantastic rate of growth, the general American farm population was disintegrating and disappearing. It declined from 30 million to 2.5 million over the same years. So even by the modernists, again, what was the critical, I'd say the critical thing for the Amish was they managed to cheat teach their own children their own way. Now, obviously, there are other factors in that community, the religious tie, but the schooling, the evidence suggests that the protection of the schooling uh, kept their community alive, kept it viable. Um, you know, and I used to, um, the, the issue came up with uh, zero population growth and so on, how they would think about this. Well, you know, I used to worry about population growth. I used to worry about it a lot. And once in a while, I'll, when I travel to Southern California and get on the freeways, I, I still have flashbacks to those old worries. Um, but mostly I've shaken it off. Certainly the current problem in the United States is not too many children. I think it's about enough. There's been a, a negative population growth level relative to uh, fertility and mortality patterns since the uh, early 1970s. And in my own part of the country, the vast cracks of the Midwest and the Plains states, and they are simply emptying of people. Um, my state of Iowa, where I grew up, was born and grew up. Uh, a rich and fertile place, plenty of water, plenty of clean, fresh air. It's emptying out. Um, outside of uh, Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, the place, Iowa's sort of slowly shutting down. So I, I don't worry about the population growth too much anymore. Finally, just the one last comment. One conclusion I've come to, you know, after fretting about these things for a while, is that there is a, there's a very simple formula. Um, and I'm not sure if there are many exceptions to this. I used to think there were more. I still hold out to the possibility that there might be one, but I'm losing faith in that even. And that is, the rule is this, if the state grows, the family declines. If the family grows, the state declines. Like I say, the one place I still am holding out hope for family policies in the area of taxation. But uh, I used to believe it was true of housing policy to help families, and I think they can for a short time, but I lost faith in that uh, about five years ago, and I'm just convinced it wasn't working anymore. I still hold out that taxation policy can help, but I'll probably someday lose faith in that as well. Uh, and that the rule may approve the in fact the absolute. So thank you. Our first responder will be Vernon Robinson from North Carolina. So where is the microphone, please? And uh, where is Vernon, please? And uh, there we go. And then, if you would like to be a, uh, a questioner, uh, flag my attention somehow, and I will, okay. Uh, and I'll send him home, my goodness. Okay. One, two, three. Alan, I, I, I still can't see the causal relationship between attending public schools and having fewer children. I mean, um, you know, I was listening and you know, there's no there there. Um, 
you mentioned that during the same period, you had this upheaval in the economy where the economic incentives for having large families were uh, eroding, and then you re-emphasize that point with the Amish where they have still have massive incentives to have large families because essentially they're living in an agrarian economy. Um, and so I just don't see the causal relationship, the causal relationship has been demonstrated um, regardless of what positive correlation is there uh, between attending state schools and having fewer kids. Well, I, you know, in 20 minutes it's hard to uh, make a detailed presentation. I would specifically refer you to the book by John Caldwell, Theory of Fertility Decline, Academic Press, 1982. He makes the case with all the graphs and numbers and charts that anyone could ever wish for. And um, I would uh, refer you to that book. The actual, what, what, what he suggests, what he argues in it, is that the, the state school introduces a new worldview, might be the way to put it. That, I think, he would see as a triggering mechanism. And it's an anti-family or a non-family worldview. And that begins the the corrosive process. That's basically how he explains it. And again, he's not, Caldwell was not looking at the United States. He was looking at third, what we'll call third world countries for his principal evidence. It was only later that uh, two sociologists said, well, was this true for the United States as well? And they went back and again, the thesis that Caldwell presented, I don't have that reference right here. I, I left it upstairs where I can give it to you on the U.S. situation, but the, the Caldwell thesis perfectly explained that the correlations were extremely strong, that it was not the rise of industry that, that caused the change. It was not the transformation of the economy. It was the introduction of state schooling. It is a startling thing. But uh, let's, let's move on to our next question. I'm sorry, but Kathy Duffy will be our next questioner, and I'm going to squeeze one, a comment in here that maybe is a semi-answer to that question. Maybe it is that people who uh, consider children a burden want to offload that burden and send their children to a government school, and they want to have fewer children. So maybe it's coming at it from the other angle. It's not a causal, it's just a, an effect. Go ahead, Kathy, Kathy well, Duffy, and then the next Ritt question will be uh, Ken Susan Edwards. Uh, Vernon really asked my question, but uh, a point on the homeschooling, the correlation. You, uh, a lot of us are noticing you can identify when a homeschooling convention is going on because it's all vans in the parking lot. No small cars. <laughs> so you might start from there doing research on it. So, Ken Sturgeon answer. Ken Sturgeon answer. Uh, Alan, you began by quoting Horace Mann. Uh, among the other things that he claimed for state schooling, government uh, schooling, was that crime, poverty, illegitimacy, and illiteracy would be reduced so substantially within a hundred years with the increase in government schooling that prisons might not even be necessary. <laughs> as, as you know, his intellectual heirs are far more firmly in control of schooling today than they were then. Uh, this may be rhetorical, but give us your assessment of how well they have succeeded. <laughs> well, they're doing splendidly. <laughs> Claudio said is a the highlights of Alan Carlson's um, videotape interview uh, by uh, Karen Carriker on November the 11th, 1995, at the uh, Separation of School State Conference. I've written. I've been very interested in the uh, the state and the situation of the family in the late 20th century. 
and have come to the conclusion that you know, one of the real deep-seated problems facing the family is the fact that it, many decades, in fact over a century ago, began to lose and abandon the educational function. And I've come to believe further that only by regaining that function do families have a chance to reorganize and become again what I think they are meant to be. That is a functional social entity, a, an institution, if you'll have it, that in fact uh, has the, the prior claim to the loyalty of individuals, which I believe is the correct form of social organization that we're intended as human beings to have. Ideas that I read in one of your pieces that the family is the basic unit of society as opposed to the individual being the basic unit of society, which is oftentimes uh, taught in sociology classes in college. Well, we are born into a web of relationships that are that constitute the family. We have been led to believe, though, that somehow liberation constitutes li freedom from those obligations and responsibilities, that we become free when we reject our parents and we reject the obligations and duties that being in a family that uh, are uh, involved. We've been taught that actually by people whose interest it is that we abandon the family. Who are those people? Well, first of all, the, the, the promoters and the defenders of the state. As the family weakens, the state grows. Because the family performs certain duties, certain obligations relative to the care of the sick, the care of the elderly, the care of the young, and the care of the very old. The educational function. If the family abandons these, who grows? Well, the state grows. At the same time, um, the more cynical leaders of, 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 of modern business also see their opportunity. As the family ceases to be a productive unit, as the family ceases to eat together, as the family members cease to do things for each other, who grows? Who gains? Well, again, the corporate sector gains. So, that, that, that message, well, freedom constitutes freedom from the family is in fact been promoted by the very people whose interest it is in to see the family disintegrate and to see the family weaken. And I think it's time we called their bluff and, and, and reveal, reveal them for what they are, which is in fact, I think, people whose interests lie in the destruction of the family, they are family destroyers. Uh, could you respond to the new definitions of families? In fact, as I recall the uh, NEA, for example, and many other state organizations have redefined the family. They're saying that our past view of what constitutes a family is an outmoded idea, outdated idea. Could you respond to find it in the new Well, that's confusing, either intentionally or, or otherwise, uh, confusing degeneration with, uh, with evolution and change. I, I believe, and I, I hold this view both, uh, both derived from, uh, from scripture, but also from the modern sciences that there is a standard form of the family that's, that's, that's universal to all, all parts of humanity. Uh, and it's no more subject to change than any other instinct, any other thing written in our biological code, in our hormones, in our genes, in our instincts. You can define the family throughout the world. And in every historic age, with a man and a woman bonded together in a social covenant known as marriage, for the purposes of producing children, for the purpose of uh, creating a small home economy, for the purpose of protection, for the purpose of continuity, continuing the generations and the sense of lineage. This defines the family in every age. There is only one choice which you can really make between monogamy and polygyny. 
Those are the two basic human choices. Monogamy being one man married to one wife, polygyny one man married to multiple wives. That's the basic cultural choice. Now in our civilization, the civilization of Christendom, monogamy has been the rule. That's, that doesn't change. And willingness to treat corruption and erosion and change confuses the issue. There is decline, yes, the family has, in fact, been under unusual pressures over the last uh, 100, 150 years. The growth of the state has been the, one of the two principal generators of that pressure. Um, but uh, it's, it's uh, confusion at best and just fraud at worst to say this constitutes family change. It constitutes family decline. The functions of a family that we've lost with these fractures and redefining or redefinition of the family uh, exactly what we have lost. Families have lost to the state the functions of education, the functions of what I would call dependency, the dependency functions, that is the care of the sick, the elderly, the very young, um, and, and also the general welfare function and the protective functions. Uh, families were understood to protect children. The state has now said, no, we're the fine protection of children. Relative to the industrial sector, families have lost most of their former productive functions. Everything ranging from uh, providing your own housing and providing your own transportation to, uh, more recently, cooking your own meals uh, and providing infant care. Those, too, are now moving towards the corporate sector through fast food restaurants and kinder care and, and various things. Some say you can't go back to the old ways. I say that's utter nonsense. Some of these things can, and in fact, are properly placed within the family context. Only recently have economists begin to appreciate this problem of creating what they call human capital. Human capital is the economist's way of creating, how do we create good human beings? And we create good human beings not by putting them in cookie cutters, not by running them through a bureaucratic machine that's a modern school, we do that when two parents love that child and give that child every bit of devotion they can and every bit of time that they can. That's how we create human capital, i.e. good human beings. And education is absolutely critical to that, and I think it's the most critical function that we have to get back to the family, to family control. Um, that means homeschooling in many cases. It can mean closely held and controlled schools uh, from for children from a number of families, but where the parents, in fact, aren't deeply engaged in the school, control and understand what the curriculum is and work closely with the teacher. That's what we need to recover. And it's not, it's actually a relatively easy thing once we get over the, the myths and the, uh, the inhibitions and the, um, and the barriers that have been artificially created by those who defend the current dominant system of, of state control. I recently heard a definition of tolerance, which is another catchphrase that is attributed to the necessity for public schools. Uh, that tolerance is basically something that in order to gain tolerance, an individual has to be pulled apart from their basic foundation or their basic belief. That true tolerance between uh, our melting pot countries, it would be to teach young people, teach our children 
to accept other people. We don't have to um, agree with, with each other's ideas. We don't have to get deeply enmeshed in their ethnic um, study in order to be tolerant or in order to, to respect other people, be polite, be courteous, be think the most important things I learned in kindergarten kind of an approach. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I would just refer to personal experience. Actually, my, my oldest child, a son, was in public school for the first five years. And uh, the school he went to was a neighborhood school, and actually it was a school with actually a surprising uh, natural integration with different kinds of kids. Although they had placed in the school also a, a Hispanic program, a Spanish language program. And when my son went to school, he was naturally curious. Uh, I think he was without prejudice. Uh, the the, uh, the Spanish-speaking children, he was curious about them, he wanted to meet them, he wanted to get to know them. But the way the system structured that, within a very short amount of time, not only he, but all the other children from our neighborhood grew to dislike Spanish children. They, they were treated as a separate unit in the school. Uh, the way the school had structured the whole program was designed to set one group against the other. I would say, in fact, that the public system in that case not only did not promote tolerance, it promoted and, in fact, encouraged intolerance. So I just think it's a lie. It's an absolute lie that, that, that the state school system promotes tolerance. In fact, I think I would help. One of the reasons race relations are so bad in this country today is because the public school system, the way it is structured, and the what I would call the phony efforts at quote-unquote multicultural education have in fact encouraged, have in fact encouraged distrust, have in fact encouraged racism, have in fact created the very problem or aggravated the very problem it was supposed to solve. I just don't buy it. I don't, I've never seen, I don't, I've not seen a single system or a single school where that in fact is, where in fact the school system has made things better. I think it has a tendency to make things worse. In your opinion, how would the full separation of school and state impact the family? The full separation of school and state would no longer allow parents to be lazy. It would say that no longer can you send your children to the public school, turn them over to the state with a good conscience and say, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. To be quite frank, many families have found the public schools a convenient place to park their children, a convenient place to wash their hands. I think that uh, the state, in fact, has encouraged that because it's in the state interest to take over the children, to turn them into little state beings. Um, there would be overnight, a, a, I think, a dramatic change. Every family, for example, that has become a homeschooling family, Every family first has struggled with the decision, but I've, but I've known they've struggled with the decision. Can we do it? Is it possible? They finally make the leap, and it's kind of a leap of faith. But within a very short time, they find themselves transformed, fundamentally transformed. They find the internal psychology of the family change. They find the commitment of time that each family member makes change. They find their relationships with each other fundamentally altered. It's because they suddenly need each other in a way that wasn't true before when they were simply sharing a roof and an occasional meal. They suddenly need each other. And they suddenly need each other in a, in a fundamental way, and they're taking responsibility for each other. 
in the fundamental task of growing up. And when that happens, I just say, everything changes. And this is what it feels like to be, as a sociologist would say, re-institutionalized. The family actually comes to life. It's like starting up an engine uh, that's been silent for a long time. And suddenly things start clicking. And those families also start started enjoying a kind of what I would call an exhilaration that, uh, that's been unknown for, for many generations of Americans. And suddenly we realize, hey, we can do this ourselves. We don't need to have to, the state doesn't have to deliver this for us. In fact, we can do it better than the state on just about every count. On every count from, uh, from, from basic instruction in, uh, in, uh, reading and writing and arithmetic, even to the question of, 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 of toleration and tolerance and learning to appreciate other cultures, even to the question of national unity. I was in a radio debate a few months ago with a woman where this issue came up and I mentioned homeschooling and she was just appalled. She was a, a nice person, a social worker. She taught social work at a university in Wisconsin. And she finally said, well, homeschooling is terrible. How will children, you know, learn to be unified? You know, I, she, 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 and then she referred specifically to the McGuffey readers. And she said, the McGuffey readers are what held this country together. And she walked right into the trap. I said, show me one public school in this country anywhere that's using the McGuffey readers. And I'll concede your point. I can show you a dozen homeschools in my neighborhood that use the McGuffey readers. So I just, there's an exhilaration that comes, and I think families, as they become refunctionalized, clearly they become stronger. So I think that change should come. Each of us has to take responsibility for ourselves and our own household first. It's, uh, it's fun to think about grand social reforms and grand policy changes. And sometimes, uh, sometimes they make a difference. But the real revolution comes when each of us simply does what we're supposed to do in the little sphere in which we operate, and particularly within our families and our households. We take the steps there. And in fact, if we do that, if we become examples, if we build communities of others who've taken that step, that's how the change will come, far more so than through grand policy changes at the state and national level. So we begin there. And yes, I think that's sufficient. If we get our own household straight, if we get our own responsibilities straight, everything else will follow. Looking at it from that perspective, it's very empowering for the individual who can look at the whole path in front of them with all of the families and realize that that's out of their control, but they do have that control personally. Um, but just to play the devil's advocate here, what would happen to the children of families who don't have that personal commitment? Um, possibly the parents have been very injured educationally through society, through tragedies. I'm not saying that it's natural or instinctive that they have abandoned their children. For whatever reason, those parents do not have the emotional or uh, intellectual resources to get involved with educating the children with taking back that policy. What happens to the kids in the interim, you know, while society is making this step 
positive step backwards. On the one hand, I can't, I can't guarantee universal good. I believe we live in a fallen world. What I can say is this, is this if, uh, as we move towards uh, a system of parental responsibility, I think there will be less damaged children, fewer human casualties than under the existing system. At the same time, that doesn't mean that we just abandon children, or can or should, or would. I just don't think that would happen. I think there are too many good people willing to help, willing to reach out a hand to help troubled children, to help troubled parents, and to help guide them if they can. Um, there have been times in the past, and we'll talk about the past of the uh, of, of, of both the United States, of, but of the Christian West, when in fact the Church, in its various manifestations, managed to provide a vast array of services for people who were in trouble, people who needed help. And we even see signs of that today. It still happens. Uh, Christian ministries in, um, in inner cities, making a dramatic difference in people's lives and helping people find ways again. I can't guarantee that, that this, shall we say, informal uh, but very real safety net will, will help and save everybody. No, I don't. It, it won't. I can guarantee this, though, that if in fact if it's allowed to operate, and if people are allowed to to express their their, their religious witness as well as their own sense of responsibility, I think, in fact, I I, I believe that. Uh, fewer people will ultimately be hurt and damaged than are today. That I can almost guarantee. It seems one recently I was reading a work by a gentleman in the LSU called the Public Orphan. And in it he was describing something that I thought I could bought those uh, projective plans for the public school. But I was very surprised at what was outlined there was almost a cradle-to-grave agenda for families beginning and centering on the public school system. In your opinion, for the state to take over caring for the psychological needs of families to be the parenting director, so to speak, under the uh, treatment of helping families be able to communicate and work better together, for the public school to take over that role, as well as feeding our children breakfast and lunch and possibly even dinner, as was outlined in, in this plan. In your opinion, what would happen as a result? Would this be better for families? Uh, and if not, why? Well, it would be, uh, it marks the end of that. Uh, uh, just another way to the uh, to the final destruction of families. Families need to have functions. Otherwise, in, in a sense, they really aren't families anymore. And what you've described is another scheme, uh, not so, just the most recent of many schemes, to, to devise to simply replace the family. Uh, it still leaves the family kind of with a with a function of reproduction, but that's about it. 
and after that the state takes care of the children, in fact it takes care of the parents. Oddly enough, this was, uh, this was, the, original, uh, this was the original plan by Horace Mann, the founder of, uh, uh, the father of American public education. Uh, as he said in one of his reports from the 1840s, the government of the state of Massachusetts is parental, and it seeks to take care of all of its members as the parents would. Well, that's, that's grotesque. <laughs> that's the opposite of liberty. It's the exact opposite of Republican government. Uh, it's the exact opposite of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of what we want in a society, even today. And if the school cannot, as we know, everybody knows, can no longer teach reading and writing and arithmetic, if the schools are incapable of even doing those things, how do they possibly think they can, they can take on all these other functions as well? I, I've stopped trying to think, well, they're just trying to be right. I think it's just a power grab. I, I, I'm totally cynical now when I hear these claims. Well, we're going to try to help. We're here to help. We want to help take care of these social problems. No, the state thrives on social problems. The state grows on social problems. In fact, the more problems that can be pinned on the family, the fatter the state grows. Don't believe these people whatsoever. Their interest is in encouraging family disintegration and driving the family away because the state will replace it there are jobs, there are money, there's power. That's the real game that's being played. So the state, unless you say the cannibal, continues everything around it itself. The state is an abstract entity, yes. Grows as the family declines. But of course the reverse is true. If the state declines, I believe also the family will grow. Could you capitalize in your opinion, what separating education from state control would do to the overall fabric of your national family? Well, first of all, the, the separation of the school from state would, um, like I say, would, would uh, I think, uh, after a, a period of rough adjustment, we would see much stronger families. Because I, I think deep down inside, every parent still has that, uh, that deep inner spark of responsibility. And we'll respond to that once the, the law no longer pushes them in another way or encourages them towards what I would consider a kind of irresponsibility. I'd also think single parenthood, which is uh, such a major problem in our country today, um, if economic logic would, would fade away to the degree to which the state no longer picks up the pieces for it. In fact, what's happened is that not only through public education, but through the whole supportive welfare apparatus, the state has become surrogate fathers, the surrogate father of a vast arena of, of public dependent women. Um, once, the, uh, once the state is no longer surrogate father, I can guarantee there will be far fewer single mothers. Well, I'm not certain this is fine. As I listened to you earlier today, if I understood you correctly, there is a marked increase in the fertility, the fertility of uh, either 
homeschooling families or uh, families who have in some way separated as much as possible, be honest, uh, from state government. Could you address that just a little bit more than you did today? And could you finish with what I see is, if this is, you know, from all perspectives, if, if this is an accurate plan and they're having more children, if we just wait things out a little bit, we're talking about zero population growth in the rest of the of the world and 7.5 children or whatever it was in these good strong nuclear families pretty soon they'd be in if current trends continue, and uh, they rarely do, but uh, current trends continue, and maybe another 50 or 100 years, most of the country will be Amish, Mormon, or Hispanic. Um, and, um, but on a, on a more serious front, yes, uh, once families recover their sense of their own power and self-identity, once married couples are living in a context, in a psychological context, uh, where in fact the, uh, the pressures of outside forces of the state and of the corporate economy have been lessened in one way or another. Yes, they welcome children. Children are an expression of their love and their commitment to each other. Uh, children also, in a, in, a, in a properly functioned family, become an important asset to the family in a whole variety of ways. So, um, fertility is important really as a sign, as a sign of a healthy family life. If uh, people have children, and they have more children, when in fact the family is healthy, when the family is full, when the family is in fact a functional unit, they welcome children. When the family is under pressure, when the family is under attack, when the family is seeing its function ripped away by outside entities, children disappear. What part do you think the breakdown of the fabric of morality in our society has to play in this infertility problem? Are we talking about clinical infertility or infertility by choice, just the reduction in the population? Well, infertility has a number of contemporary causes. To some degree, it's the, it's the result of the delay in the start of families. That has economic causes as well as cultural pressures. Um, it's very difficult for a young couple to, to have a, enough sense of security right now to start a family, say, at age 20 or 21. It's, um, um, the, the economic opportunities have, have, have changed vastly in recent times. So, again, fertility is a sign of a properly ordered society, and I, and I want to stress it is marital fertility, a sign of a properly ordered society, economically, socially, and politically. And uh, families of numerous children are a sign of, of social health, uh, and it means that, in fact, the family is allowed to do its function and do its job. Um, again, if you chip away at the family, the consequence will be fewer children. Especially transmitted diseases, I know, have played a tremendous part in uh, girls' uh, very young 
healthy what would be their, their childbearing is finding that they are infertile and the breaking of the fabric of, of morality in our society that I was wondering if that plays Well, without question, early, early sexual experimentation, uh, abortion, uh, these, uh, these, these all have a tendency to increase the risk of later infertility and uh, without, without a question, uh, that's, been a, that's been a part of it. But again, those things only happen in the context of a family structure that's lost its protective function, where parents no longer have the ability to shield their children from, uh, from the pressures that, 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 that push them into those kinds of behaviors. Um, so it, it does all tie together, I think. For families and possibly even small communities to separate from this very contaminated society, and on one hand, it may sound like a radical idea, but to see Stanley Robinson, even though it was say, the fourth time, uh, to me is the supreme paradise on earth. Could you uh, kind of address this separating out of necessity aspect of families? Well, our first attempt obviously must be to try to preserve. A, a restore a healthy, wholesome society. But ultimately, we may be called upon as a step in that direction is to first protect our own children and our own ability to raise children in a, in a proper society. The, uh, in, the, in the period after the, after the disintegration of the Roman Empire, uh, there was a time when, in fact, the Christian witness and, in fact, the sense the whole process of learning receded into the monastery. Um, I think it's possible that we may find ourselves facing that same situation. This time, though, we're in a sense families retreat for a time to a, uh, to, a, to, a to a community kind of existence, where in fact they preserve the the essentials for rebuilding a society of virtue. In a way, you can look at examples of that happening already. There are uh, a common example we can re I refer to frequently are the Amish, uh, who in fact have found a way, in a, in a I think at a very perilous time, to live lives of uh, of decent Christian witness, of mutual sharing, of mutual caring, and mutual support, um, despite pressures economic and pressures political that, that, that assail them on all sides. They raise decent, good children. And they, 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 they survive, and in some ways they even thrive in a, in a culture that rejects everything they stand for, despises everything they stand for. Yes, it may be possible. It is possible to do that, and it may be necessary for more people to choose that option. Again, our first obligation as parents is to our children and to give them the possibility of growing up in a decent society. And I think that may drive this um, this is this, this, this a necessary option for the future. For information about the Separation Alliance, please call or write us at 4578 North 1st, number 310, Fresno, California, 93726. Or phone at area code 209-292-1776. Or fax at 292-7582. Also, you might like to visit our webpage at www.
S-E-P-S-C-H-O-O-L dot org. Thank you.